Ah, fuck. Ow, it hurts. Why do you even have a needle gun? Hey, man, you're the one that wanted a tattoo straight on your eyeball. And you think, oh, Frank's been to prison. Of course, he's going to know how to do an eyeball tattoo. No, no. God, no. I don't know what prison you went to. Clearly not there long enough. No, you're probably right on that front. Okay, let's, uh, let's, let's get you cleaned up here. You, you may be mad at me now, but in a couple months, this is going to be a really funny story. That's, that's true. Uh, most, of, most of my eye injuries work out that way. As I am of partially Norse heritage, this will just bring me closer to the gods. Yeah, there you go. Uh, where that hole was is just uh, where prophecy is going to be seeping into from here on out. All we need to do is uh, steal a crow from the park and then we're good. Usually I have prophecies seeping out other areas, so it's a good change of pace. Yeah, alright. Well, yeah. I-, I know I've gotten a few prophetic rashes in my time. and uh, You know, it's sort of a double-edged sword. But that's a a great supernatural identity. Though it fits pretty well with um, the whole like birthmark that is an omen sort of idea. Yeah, yeah. You just you get new ones all the time because fate is impermanent, of course. Yeah, that's fun. All right. So yeah, what? Why exactly? Why were you wanting me to tattoo your eye again? Well, actually, I just wanted to use the needle gun um, because it is thematic for what we're talking about. Okay, what are we talking about? Well, we could talk about the Borcock hypothesis. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Um, that's like the, the the law of chaos stuff, right? Well, yeah, I thought you'd be more, a bit more excited about this because I know you always like more cock. <laughs> eh, sometimes, sometimes I could use less cock. It depends. It's it's that's fair. That's all about the balance. <laughs> it's all about the balance. I'm a bit familiar with uh, some of Moorcock. I'm even familiar with some of his work. Uh, like, like all great literature, I have been exposed to it largely in the ideal conditions. That being, I've read the comic book adaptation of it. Oh, yes. But, you know, for that sort of pulp stuff, I, honestly, I think, in a way, a lot of those comic book adaptations are kind of better than, like, the original short stories. I'm a, I'm a big uh, Favre and the Great Mauser guy, and I honestly prefer the comic book adaptation uh, to the original short stories as much as I like the short stories. Um, sure. You know, I've read a little bit of the original Moorcock stories. I've read a little bit of Elric, as far as, like, the actual mm. original fiction, but I haven't really dived in into any of the more, like, postmodern and metaphysical end of his stuff, you know, Jerry Cornelius and whatnot, which I'd imagine that stuff is more relevant to Unknown Armies. Well, yes and no. Um, Jerry Cornelius sort of exists in his own world, which is, or worlds, which there's a lot of stuff you can steal, especially in terms of um, imagery and little ideas from Jerry Cornelius. I have been exposed to him through reading League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which he shows up in, but... um, Of course. I I just got the sense that it is very 60s that those stories are... Oh, yeah, are it's the whole point. Very whole 60s. Point. It's swinging 60s. Yeah. Um, I've read quite a bit of Moorcock over the years. I've read Jerry Cornelius. I've read Elric. I haven't read that many of the, like, the Eternal Champion books because they're all different. They're all set in different yeah. worlds. Um, I have read... Uh, Dances at the End of Time, which you'd quite like. I have read those, actually. I have read that one, and that is quite good. Um, it's, as far as like the idea, I do admittedly prefer the Ember series. There's, there's kind of very similar vibes there. But um, 
the Dance at the End of Time feels kind of like a, a prelude or a prototype to uh, Amber in a sense. Oh yeah, it definitely was influential. Um, yeah. And that is one of the biggest things about Moorcock is his influence. We'll get into a bit later. Um, I'll just... Yeah, actually, no, well, let's go into that right now, actually. Um, the thing about Moorcock is he is not the best writer in terms of like pure artistic chops, but he's sure. insanely prolific wrote a hundred novels yeah. in his 60-something years. He's still writing them, I think. He's still writing them. Oh, he's got over 160 short stories on top of that. Um, and has done lots of fucking editing. <laughs> lots and lots of editing. Yes, yeah, that's what I'm more familiar with him as, honestly. Like, as the editor of New Worlds and kind of... Yes. Um, incubating that whole sort of British side of the new wave of science fiction and fantasy. It not only just um, helped incubate the British new wave, but it was influential on American new wave or like American yes. science fiction yeah. fantasy of the time. People like um, Harlan Ellison and yeah. Samuel Delaney. Um, Samuel Delaney is American? Yeah, that's right. Um, Yo, got... Samuel Delaney's new wave as fuck. Yeah, and they got pushed by Michael Moorcock. I know that New Worlds was fairly popular in the States as well as the UK. It was the only only non-American uh, science fiction magazine to win a Hugo, I believe. Interesting, alright. Because it did occupy a niche or niche, however you prefer it, that didn't really um, exist as much. Um, that sort of because the funny thing about Moorcock is he was he was the editor of a science fiction magazine and he hated like 99% of sci-fi because yeah. he was like, this is all fascist nonsense. Well, that's sort of the um, context that I'm most familiar with is his influence as an editor and just creatively. Like, I, I don't know his stuff very well, but I'm pretty familiar with the stuff of like a lot of people he influenced heavily, like oh, M. John yeah. Harrison... Alan yep. Moore. I mean, to get the fascist criticism, Norman Spinrad. Yep. Oh, and him being like a huge advocate for the works of Mervyn Peake. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. That ties into Michael Moorcock's like long history of hot takes, um, <laughs> especially with yes. his essays. Epic um, poo. <laughs> epic poo. And the other one was, um, oh, was it something Stormtroopers, Starship Stormtroopers or something, where he was complaining yeah. about um, Lovecraft and Heinlein. And all that. I mean, uh, calling calling Lovecraft and Heinlein uh, kind of dodgy and fascist is very old hat now. But at the time, it was like very oh, yeah. like oh wow, you're that, yeah. that's like radical. That is calling yeah. there was yeah there was a time when calling Lovecraft kind of fascist was edgy and countercultural uh, among the sci-fi community. It it was yeah it was kind of countercultural. In many ways, yeah, because Moorcock was, is, and is a very committed uh, philosophical and political anarchist, and that comes out in his works. Um, and he was very critical of a lot of science fiction for basically, like, beyond the whiz-bang of the high technology, being rather shallow in a philosophical yeah. sense and a political yeah. sense. And a lot of that is like, it's interesting how reading some of his... Um, Essays. I had. Uh, I was reading some of his um, political essays um, of his trials and tribulations when he was publishing New Worlds, and the um, the pushback he got, both from like the mainstream, um, because like the he, it was it was um, debated like it was brought up in the British Parliament because he'd received an Arts oh, wow. Council grant, 
And oh yeah, like, no, I've heard about this. That and that was a story that Spinrad wrote, actually, right? I believe so. Yes, and yeah, that was uh, a big hubbub about that. With it was having difficulty, like um, major retail outlets didn't want to carry it anymore, which would have been disastrous yeah. at the time. Um, and he also got a lot of pushback, and it really reminded me some of the arguments that he, as he was describing them. And I'm just like, this is just this is just the fucking sad puppies, but like four years <laughs> earlier. <laughs> yeah. I can definitely see the fucking parallels there. Science fiction having that sort of militaristic and arguably fascist. Honestly, I'd say for some of the Heinlein's work, it's hard to argue against it even. Comes from that genre's, especially in its like first real popularity, its origins in like sort of military engineers. Those were the sort of... Mm key consumers and writers of science fiction for, I'd say, most of the 50s. Yeah, well, I would say that um, not just military engineers, a lot of people in the middle, like, science fiction magazines were very popular on the front lines in World War II for a reason. They yes. were escapist fiction, um, and when you're fighting a war, escapist fiction is what you want. Yes. Um, especially if it's easy to write and it has like crazy shenanigans and like Martian princesses and all this sort of nonsense while you're fighting the Nazis. It makes sense. And it is interesting because this was like, especially the sort of pulpy, sort of um, more what are considered lowbrow um, adventure magazines like Startling Stories and Astounding Tales yeah. and all that yeah. were what Moorcock grew up on and preferred to the more like, like, um, serious science fiction of the time uh which he which he thought of as too he wasn't a big hard, he didn't like hard sci-fi that much yeah it's something that has like a very specific demographic where again it's like it appeals to sort of engineer types above all else but it does also mean that you know you're dealing with people that might not care about you know stuff that more writery types usually care about like you know characterization and themes uh they, they more just want like a uh, a cool guy that's smart and knows about the science that I, the reader, know about and use that to save the day and get the girls and, you know, it's escapist shit, like you said. Yeah, Nothing wrong just... with that, but it shouldn't be the only thing it does. And I think one of the big things that Moorcock was was sort of the first push of, I guess, what would become the hippies into science fiction and the pulps. Oh, yeah. Well, yes, I would say so. It was the hippies, but it was a very sort of um, on the edge of that sort of uh, yeah. 1960s psychedelia versus yeah. like other types of hippie genre. And he was writing pretty early on, like in the early 60s. So like it, it was sort of proto-hippie, but also his early stuff like uh, Hawk Moon is pretty oh, yeah. standard pulp fantasy stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was very much tied in with his, like, progressive rock as well. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> he was, like, that's very that's much also a big thing there, yes. And that's the thing. He didn't just, um, like, he definitely helped and influenced later writers, but he also did have a big influence over um, prog rock, which carried on to other genres in the future. Well, and prog rock also has, like, a weird right-wing history, in a sense. Fucking oh, Russian sure. there. Their fucking concept, Ayn Rand concept album. Oh, my God. Um, yes. Um, but that just makes it interesting. Um, yes. Also, like, bits... But Moorcock wrote a lot. As I was saying before, he wasn't the greatest writer, but he was prolific, and he was an ideas man. 
and his ideas filtered in everywhere. Yeah, the stories I always heard with him is like, oh, he could crank out a novel on a weekend. Yep, he he did, like, he wrote novels in, like, three days, in, like, a week he wrote a series of three novels. Um, He was was making the money, doing the Pulp Fiction writer uh, thing, which I I find respectable, but it meant he didn't polish his prose very much. But it also meant (laughs) that his ideas, like, they spread far and wide. I mean, without Michael Moorcock, you're not going to get Dungeons and Dragons because well, oh, not, God, you're not no. going to get the alignment system um, no, because that was not. very much ripped off. You're not going to get uh, Warhammer 40k or Warhammer because that they took that chaos yep. was yep. like the concept. They even stole the fucking the symbol for it. The uh, the chaos like the arrows going away. Yeah, the, the, like the star thing. Yeah. Yes, he was the first person to use not the first person to use the term multiverse he was the second person to use the term multiverse oh, okay. uh, beat by a French I believe a French no it was a French it was a philosopher called Powers um, who ended up getting um, uh, a character in one of Moorcock's books <laughs> because he'd beaten him to the word multiverse uh, but he was the first person to use it in a fictional capacity and so now fucking Doctor Strange and like all the various Spider-Men and all this sort of thing. That, that influence on comics is huge. Um, he was the guy that brought that into the fore, uh, into, at least in terms of fiction, um, a multiverse, which is, yeah, hugely influential. Someone would have come up with the idea eventually, but still. I mean, the funny thing is when you think about it, a lot of these ideas were essentially came about because he was trying to hit deadlines. Or trying to get oh, yeah. something written more quickly. But yeah, oh, yeah, as I've read his work, that's sort of been the thing that always struck me. It's like, okay, there's certain things he kind of repeatedly comes back to. Which, mm-hmm. you know, the Eternal Champion wasn't something that he like had in mind from the get-go. It's kind of something, from my understanding, where he was like... He realized a lot of his protagonists were kind of similar. It's like, okay, what if there's a reason for this? And then that's oh, yeah. where the Eternal Champion idea came from. So who's the Eternal Champion, though? So, in the sort of... Morcock multiverse, uh, there are two key cosmic forces. Chaos and law. And you don't want too much of either, because too much chaos is just like people are going to be dying all over the place. It's very much sort of like a strong rule the weak sort of deal. And too much law leads to stagnancy and totalitarianism and all that shitty stuff. And the... Point of the Eternal Champion is to have a guy in a particular universe whose job is to maintain a balance between the two. Whenever chaos is too rampant, he fights on the side of law. Whenever law is getting too uppity, he fights on the side of chaos. Exactly, yeah. It's it's interesting because Warcock does suggest that, like... It's, he doesn't write in terms of good versus evil, but he does uh, yeah. say that like evil exists on the margins, like on the, the extremes of law yeah. and chaos. One thing I, that reminds me of um, the Eternal Champion in some ways is the Room of Renunciation. You can make an argument that the Room of Renunciation could fulfill a similar function because Interesting. It All right. In- okay, elaborate on that because that, that's, that's a cool notion. Because like the rooms... The different rooms of renunciation, they renounce you, they turn you around in one way or another. What that means varies from room to room, but they don't have a consistent sort of um, ideal or like a consistent modus operandi. Like if you're someone who like strongly believes 
um, that you are a um, like a committed communist or capitalist, there's a room that will come along and like test that and see and and turn you around. If you believe that, if you're a big techno techno guy, there's that room that's uh, the anarcho primitive primitivist room that's going to come <laughs> along and turn you around. Like they're all about sort of choosing people and like uh, putting them through a test and then turning them around. And to me, I'm like, you could see that as like a yeah. form of balancing. Sure, sure. Especially considering that they often the rooms counteract each other and go against each other, which is very similar to how the Eternal Champion isn't always on the side of one or the other. Sometimes he's all law because the universe is chaotic and sometimes he's all chaos, but most of the time he's somewhere in between. Um, And I think that having the rooms in that, like, through that lens gives the rooms... Because the rooms are hard to use, <laughs> to be honest. We're gonna go into yeah. the rooms at some point. Yes, I I agree. It's it's one of the like, it's honestly the part of the like whole unknown armies cosmology lore, whatever that I find the most impenetrable and hardest. Like it, it's the concept isn't that hard to grok. Uh, I guess to bring Highline up again, but it's I, it is weird to use. It's. Mm-hmm. Especially for something that has, in a sense, interactivity kind of so baked into its concept. Yeah. Um, it is hard to use. I've never seen anyone use it. I'd like to hear from people who have used it successfully or not. Um, I might use one I soon, actually. I um, put was... one in a game I ran, but the players never ended up really looking into it heavily. Yeah, fair enough. So it's just kind of like, a, okay, here's some stuff, and there's, you know, usual thing of the game, there's six other interesting things going on that players want to look at first. So I was like, all right, well, save that idea for later, I guess. Another aspect of the Eternal Champion, which I think is very easy to steal, is the fact that the Eternal Champion exists in different incarnations across different universes, different time periods. Um, fighting like on as an agent of the balance, so sometimes more law, sometimes more chaos. But he has some. There's uh, parallels and there's similarities and connect interconnections between the different uh, incarnations of the Eternal Champion. And there's an argument whether, over whether or not they are separate individuals or they're just the same individual, like with archetypes, um, like a, in the sort of religious sense of an archetype as being a representation of a god. Or a platonic archetype. Yeah, but different incarnations definitely have pretty different character to me. Like, someone like Coram and Elric, they feel pretty similar. But compare those two to, like, Jerry Cornelius. And Jerry Cornelius feels, you know, he has a lot more of the sort of rock and roll, freewheeling dandy sort of thing going on. Whereas Elric is all about that angst. All about that angst. And yet, and yet, uh, Elric has the black sword, the chaos-aligned sentient weapon, which is represented with Jerry Cornelius with his needle gun, and later his um, sonic gun, I believe. So there are, like, parallels across. Uh, usually, they'll have um, the usually peerless fighters and generals, and Jerry Cornelius is a good fighter in a different sort of way. He's a lover and a fighter, while Elric was more of an incel. Uh, but that just shows the variety. <laughs> Elric fucked regularly. It just was his cousin. Oh yeah, it's true. That is also something that pops up. That pops up quite a bit <laughs> across the different champions, the Eternal Consort. Um, and there's also now, the Eternal Companion, correct? Yes. Which is like, that's, that's his traveling buddy. What occurred to me is 
how you could apply this to archetypes, to avatars, right? Um, so imagine, I was just thinking like, um, mulling it over, like imagine if you played a game where everyone was playing a different archetype um, and you sort of like set in stone some different, like you got really, you start, looked at the, the descriptions of the archetypes in the book and you were like, I'm gonna, we're going to use this mask, we're going to use these various elements, right? And yeah. then later on, you play another campaign and people play the same archetype or different players play the same archetype, but it's a different like place type period. Um, but you could always like bring little ba- things back, little um, sure, interconnections, because that could yeah, be fun. Like fun. the idea that as an avatar, you're getting further and further away from being like an individual human being and closer to being, you know, an archetype. Yeah, some something more and less than human. Right, and you could still um, some a lot of the tone, a lot of the ideas from the Eternal Champion in a game that way. And then you also have the fun of when you have a Godwalker battle. Is it really? Two individuals fighting, or just two aspects? Really makes you think. I mean, yeah, like, in, and the cool thing there, too, is, like, the Eternal Champion isn't just more an archetype. Like, sure, it can be warrior easily, but I could, in certain contexts, Eternal Champion very much falls into, like, the Firebrand, um, or the Solid Citizen. You, pretty much any sort of, like, person that's kind of fighting in some way for some sort of, uh, more, um, idealistic goal is the Eternal Champion a lot of the time. The, the the difference is, I think, with archetypes in Unknown Armies is that archetypes generally fight each other. They're like the competition with with each other, while the Eternal Champion is usually fighting um, either law or chaos. Yeah. Which doesn't really, ex- like, as an external force. And I'm not sure if that external force exists, like, strongly within the Unknown Army setting. But if you introduce that, that maybe. Well, they kind of yeah. lampshade that a bit when they talk about the Morcock hypothesis in book three, where they're just like, yeah, you know, you can think of a lot of shit as some sort of cosmic conflict between law and chaos, but you may also just be kind of seeing patterns that aren't really there and unnecessarily pigeonholing things. Because, yeah, like a lot of things can be thought of as a conflict between law and chaos. There's a reason that so many fantasy settings that take that conceit from Moorcock is because it works for a lot of shit. It does, but my issue with the Moorcock hypothesis in Unknown Armies, at least how it's presented in uh, book three, is that it's sort of just shoehorned in there. It doesn't, like, with, in Moorcock's multiverse, it is, like, the basis of the cosmology. Yeah. Um, And everything's built from that, and it works very, very well. Um... And it does. It does. Is it? It's not really the basis of the Anunnaki's like cosmology. The no, is, it's a different thing, a different beast entirely. Yeah, but un- the Anunnaki's cosmology is sort of always depicted as this sort of a uh, very much a clusterfuck that the writers always kind of you know hide their hand a little bit on the inner workings of, as opposed to like D and D, where it's like, all right, the, here's a list of all the planes, and they align with different <laughs> aspects of various. Law, chaos, good, evil alignments, and then, though admittedly, some like a lot of the basic D and D, early D and D stuff, did tend to kind of equate law and chaos with good versus evil. Though, yes. as you got into AD and D, and the manual plans came out, you started having alignment emphasized more, especially again when kind of D&D multiverse cosmology came out and they were like, hey, it's the alignment is a big part of this. Honestly, at this point, that's like the 
like fifth edition very much downplays character alignment. The most significant so, role that alignment has at this point in D anD D is in its cosmological role. It's pretty clear, especially in early D anD D, that like law, no, that order and chaos, or law and chaos, was very much um, subsidiary, very much um, secondary to good and evil. Um, well, they were kind of the same thing. A lot of the time, like orcs were always and that, chaos, and then the good guys are yeah. always lawful. It, it's sort of like like Gygax to Borcock was kind of like um, what's his name, the guy that saved Lovecraft. Uh, oh, fucking um, Durleth. Durleth, yeah. Like how Durleth was like, oh, I, I love Lovecraft, but I have to make it fit into my Catholic um, worldview. Yeah. Um, and it feels like Gygax was making it fit into his. Like Christ, more Christian worldview, where Mycock, um it it wasn't about that. It was about like law and chaos. They weren't good and evil. Very much not so. It was all about a balance. Like the, the balance was to keep the universe from stagnating or collapsing. Gygax had some weird ideas about a lot of that shit. Like one key mind that his notion of alignment was also very influenced by like Paul Anderson and like Three Hearts Three Lions. Mm. On in addition to Moorcock, and that's where like a lot of his good evil stuff came from, I think. Also, sure. he was like a really weird libertarian during a time yeah. when that was more unusual. And then also on top of that, he has gone on record saying, uh, it is the duty of lawful good characters to enslave uh, evil characters and reform them. Oh, and then kill them so they don't like go back yes. to being also evil true. again. Yes. Yes. This is a great morality there, um, which kind of makes like logistical sense, I guess. Like, I'll turn you good, then kill you so you go to heaven. And then there's one less evil potential thing that I believe was the um, explanation for it, which is some weird moral utilitarianism, that's for sure. Yeah, this is why it's a bad idea to have a bunch of people on the ground knowing the exact details of uh, the afterlife. Though that could be a fun basis for, like, in a D&D game, like some weird suicide cult. And then as far as, like, Warhammer goes, um, war, like, at this point in Warhammer, chaos is pretty much the same as evil. Early on, uh, there were yeah. also, like, gods of law, uh, yes. which were, like, supposed to be, like, super totalitarian or, like, weirdly abstract all that stuff kind of got de-emphasized. And in fantasy, you know, you have law being represented by the usual Greek-esque pantheon. Yeah. And then in, you know, 40K, there's the emperor. But, like, a law it, at this point is pretty just unequivocally good, at least compared to, like, how fucked up chaos is. So there sure. is sort of this tendency when people borrow Moorcock stuff to sort of over time, flanderize it into just another good yeah. versus evil conflict. Yes, definitely. Um, and that's a pity, I feel, with um, 40k, um, especially because, like, there's no real good guys, I guess, except fucking Tao. Um, yeah. Like, no one's really... It's meant to be, like, the grim, dark future. Orcs are the only good guys because they're the only one left that are actually having fun. That's right. That's, 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 that's hedonism for you. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I could see a version of the 40k universe where they did emphasize like the fact that there are warp gods of law and there are totalitarian, and you could easily like 
that could, that I could see it making sense, but to like do it, it's too late now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> the time to do that was like forty years ago. Well, they did though. They fucking re- revamped like Warhammer Fantasy with this Age of Sigma. Oh yeah, but there's like that certain crowd of edge lords that just love chaos, and they, they you know they, they gotta keep appealing to those guys. Well, yeah, that's. Considering the alternative, considering I I feel that with like 40k nerds, um, it disturbs me when I I, I read like people um, because I like Stellaris, so I, I watch the occasional yeah. like Stellaris like actual play or whatever, um, or like you know when they, someone else is playing it or doing some like thing, and then people in the in the comments being like purge the heretic, purge the Zeno, and I'm like yeah. this is this is not this is, I don't like this this is this is not I guess it's a I guess it's a joke, but also <laughs> I don't like the smell of this. There's this phenomena that I call Dred's Law, which is that the longer a given um intellectual property coached in satire goes on for, the more its fan base will come to be made up of people that unironically enjoy the stuff it's satirizing. Yeah. That yeah. There that is probably absolutely true. Um. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's anyone who's like playing in a Starship Troopers role-playing game that's based on the movie is actually buying it based on the book. Yeah, most of the time, probably not. I don't know. Depends. I would. I don't want to say that. I, you know, like this isn't to say that like every one into forty k and even spend the means is like a fascist or what the fuck ever. No, but, no, because you, like I, more I and more of the fan base has come to be taken up by the people into that sort of shit. <laughs> No, I, I, I enjoy my 40k lore. It, it's, it's good stuff. I enjoy well, it. yeah, like, it's good as long as you remember that the Empire are supposed to be the bad guys. The Imperium. They're, they're, Thank they're you supposed much. to still be the bad guys. Yeah. They're just everyone else uh, is also the bad guys. <laughs> Except, yeah, yeah kind yeah, of the well, tower, I guess. It's, it's, 40k as a property is weird because they're like, they're getting pulled in so many directions. Like, uh, when Age of Sigmar came out, for not 40k or whatever, you know, they, like, they just didn't do anything with Slash for a while, and I got the sense that I was like, how, how the fuck do we use this while trying to, you know, still convince parents to buy the stuff for their kids? So we need to figure out a way to have this while downplaying all the Clive Barker BDSM shit. Yeah, I I want I want my sexy sexy chaos marines. Or like or like any of these dumb like rock and roll ones. I'm like, no, I want the ones that are like sexy and fucked up and cinnabites. Come on. Yeah. Uh, but you know, fundamentally, the key demographic that the shit is being marketed to is kids with rich parents. Yeah, true. And that's why you end up with stuff like those 40k children's books. There are 40k children's books. Yes. Oh my god. Okay. What 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 are they what are the stories about? Uh I how do I explain it? Um okay, uh, um Hungry Hungry Tyranid. I haven't read any of them, mind you. I'm not really that into 40k. I, a lot of stuff I know is through osmosis to being a fan of like fantasy. But um I think we're both similar levels of fans of 40k. It's, yes. Like occasionally yeah. dabble. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally um, read a wiki. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, there's so much shit on there, exactly. It's hard not to... If you hang out with any sort of nerd, then you're going to find out a little bit about it eventually. But my understanding of the kids' books are, like, they're kind of like the Hardy Boys, 
But if the Hardy Boys were fighting for a fascist space empire. Ah, so just like the real Hardy Boys. Yes, exactly. So, uh, let to get back to the Morcock hypothesis yes. presented yeah. in book three, um, it is like it's it is described as basically being like, what if the Morcock hypothesis was real? But how is expanded upon a little bit, a tiny, tiny bit, is the idea that coffee represents order and alcohol represents chaos uh, or sure. disorder or confusion, which I think in terms of um, symbolism, I think that's fair enough. I mean, people are going to bring, like considering the influence of Moorcock on music and fiction and all that, it's going to have a big effect. Like his ideas are going to have a huge effect on the occult underground in various ways. Gutter magic and rituals that appear and just the way people do magic are going to be influenced by Michael Moorcock. It's okay, it's okay. The reason I keep downing Irish coffees is I'm just upholding the balance. That's right. That's the point of Irish coffees. Does, does this imply that the same principle applies to a speedball, but more so? Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yep, the eternal champion. On the <laughs> That's right. That's right, yeah. Uh, vodka Red Bulls and all that. My old hangover cure drink um, was what I called an Aztec coffee, um, hmm. which was black coffee with either cocoa or dark chocolate, chili powder, and a splash of tequila. Okay. I could see that it being pretty bad. good. It was all right. It was just an excuse to keep drinking the next day. That's yeah, still, sure. Well, hair ha- the dog, right? Hair the dog. Yeah. But yeah, like, th- there's definitely a lot of stuff that you can kind of fit into that chaos law conflict. And I mean, sure. I-, I see that, and I see that hypothesis existing within the context of the setting of unknown armies, whether or not it's true. Mm-hmm. I do see that and think, hey, you can make a religion out of this. Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, mm. That could be fun, okay. like a, a cult underground, like, law chaos Morcock cult. Or like opposing ones, or a balanced cult, perhaps. Well, that's interesting because I've had this idea before of um, you're looking at um, like Scientology coming from uh, Hubbard, and like, and I've thought about like, what if other like classic sci-fi writers like actually spawned a religion? Because you could take um, PKD and just oh, take Valus yeah. and just turn it. It's it's it's, or, it's already prepared for you. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the holy book is ready for you. And in terms of like uh, like NPC groups, like having a a sci-fi cult which isn't the Scientologists would be fun. Borkok uh, is a perfect uh, candidate. Um, Herbert, I could easily see a bunch of the shit in Dune getting turned into a, a basis for. Oh, a cult. absolutely, absolutely, yes, one hundred percent. I I had that idea because people were criticizing the fact that. Uh, someone, an archetype, an avatar who was trying to look for a claim of the clergy, the clergy or go, uh, visiting a claim of the clergy, was doing a hajj, and people were saying, like, mm, that's a bit, it's a bit weird to use that. It seems a bit, like, insensitive to Islam. And uh, my reaction was just like, no, the person who said that was just really into Dune. And he just, like, they just, someone back in the 70s started referring to going to claims to the clergy, of the clergy as a hajj, because they liked Dune. Makes more sense. That way. Herbert appropriated it before I did. That that means it's okay. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, it's it's a daisy chain. Yes. Of appropriation. Yeah. Yes. Who would be some other fun um, fun science fiction authors to base some sort of weird religion around? Um, 
Psycho History with um, that's Asimov, I believe, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. If someone's trying to pull off like a Psycho History, that would be a, yeah. a big like trying to. Um, there's some issues with doing Psycho History. We don't have the maths for it, and also it's probably impossible. But if you had a, a powerful enough cabal, you never know. Um, that, that could be like a fun sort of uh, Cleomancer ideology. That they're like, oh, I, I'm not, I'm not editing history. I'm practicing Psycho History. Especially if you tied it into like current day concerns about the world being on the verge of collapse um you could very easily be like okay it's clearly the russians are gonna launch the nuke soon and also there's climate change so we're fucked so we need to arrange a psycho history to save the future that that's a that's a whole campaign right there i mean you're taking any of the big like uh sci-fi authors and taking anyone who's got like a clear sort of ethos um, you can build a religion out of that. Yeah, I think sure. Even if it's like more of like a personal uh, code of ethics sort of deal. What I like uh, the idea of a Moorcock, um, like magical cult, is the idea that like they vary uh, depending on like they are a cult of the balance. So it depends on what's going on. So back in the nineties, when things were all hunky dory, they were basically domestic terrorists. But now, <laughs> as things are falling apart, they're just like we need to organize this shit. That's good. That's that's a lot of fun. And the only consistency is they hate the Tolkien cult. I, I've I've seen fucking read right wingers online like unironically saying like Tolkien had a window into the real proto history of humanity. It was oh, yeah. totally unconscious, but. You know, like the certain thing, the thing that like certain of occultists have said about Lovecraft. It, it's way funnier when it's like the guy talking about elves and dwarves. Absolutely. I mean, you can say that about anything. Like, um, if we were talking, if we were doing a Delta Green podcast, I'd be just like, "Hey, we could just do that with Conan. It is the backstory of the one which they've done in Delta Green, like the Hyperborea mythos as being the yeah. real history. Um, that's problematic as fuck. Yes, <laughs> interesting." <laughs> Um, I mean, co- compared to other shit in Delta Green, that's one of the less problematic aspects of it. That's true. That's true. Um, look, and Delta Green only has one solution to these sort of things. That's why we play. I don't know how many. Well, I also play Delta Green. Anyway, back to Moorcock. Yes, I mean, like, sort of the thing is, is like it, the law versus chaos dynamic is so broad, and I think it's a cool thing. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I'd want to use it, like. Do a game where the Moorcock hypothesis is, like, fundamentally true. That's sort of pigeonholing the uh, UA cosmology in a way. And I like the UA cosmology because it's so much of a clusterfuck. But definitely having, like, people in the occult underground believe it's true and acting like it's true. And, like, having that as a key motivator for them that the players can then utilize... Is a lot of fun. Like the mm. cult of the balance, that's a lot of fun for players because that means all you need to do to get these guys on your side is to convince them that, like, no, no, if you f- follow us, you're actually enforcing the balance. We're, we're yeah, on the side yeah. of, we're on the currently losing team. So it's good. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, fuck, you came up with an eternal champion for unknown armies. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A Carnelian. Yes. Um, the, uh, what is, which, which book is Carnelian going to be in, Torfson? I think probably the Melisidian book. All right, uh, nice. Maybe somewhere else. The one time I used him, actually. Okay, Carnelian, um, I haven't looked at him for a while, but he's an um, uh, avatar, or at least it's not clear if he's an avatar of the, or an incarnation of the eternal champion, rather. Or not. But I mean, he can summon other eternal champions, so there's something yes, going on there. Su- 
yeah, there's something going on. I never went versions. Um, but he's a mumble rapper, um, and he has a needle gun, which he has a tattoo gun, which is his um, black sword. And the way I used him in my campaign, which was a coterie campaign, which is the KFC faction for Mac Attacks in in book three, and expanded upon in my soon to be released within the next ten years book. And he basically, I used him, he would just come into the store because he liked, he just came into, he goes in, hangs around with um, the whole Mac Attacks war. He, the, the Burger Wars, he sees it as like law versus chaos in a way. Um, and he's always involved somehow. But how he just came in is he, he was just a way to drop a bunch of exposition all at once because he would just like he just mumble wrapped a whole bunch of like cryptic nonsense and then walked out and it worked really well because the players are like okay how does this make sense and it was a good way to like just give some crumbs and then later on they're like oh this is what it meant oh this is what it meant and that was fun uh, as i was looking over early drafts of that stuff that uh, carnelian stuck out to me as one of my uh, one of my favorites uh SoundCloud mumble rapper with a black tattoo gun and a full chest tattoo of Elric. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> mumble rapping in McDonald's. That's that's right, and that's like I didn't really want to go into like whether or like if there's any more to the cosmology than that. I felt like that I was taking all the that was my character. That's my Michael Borcock uh, tribute character. Yeah. And it, it's you could just it's within the unknown. It doesn't contradict the unknown Harvey's universe at all. He's just a weird guy that yeah. exists. <laughs> he might be right. He might be wrong. We don't know. That's right. I like the idea of that sort of opportunistic and very idealistic uh, side taking in the context of like real life conflicts. Like a guy yeah. who thinks of himself as an incarnation of the eternal champion that's fighting in Ukraine. Yeah. And as soon as Ukraine starts objectively winning, he switched sides to Russia. Oh, no. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, that's my favorite use of the hypothesis in the UA context. It's just as a fun motivation for characters to have that players can then, you know, kind of uh, yeah. leverage to you have them as an ally or an enemy. Like, if you were going to go a bit more crazy with it, um, I think you could... Like, to tie back into our early episode on, like, Never Wins, um, you could, like, especially if you had, like, a, a, a group, a cabal of, like, avatars, for example, um, and you wanted to go crazy with it, you could just send them to, like, different universes. Sure. Um, sure. They remain oh, their yeah, avatars. Go for it. <laughs> but that, that, that could be fun. Whenever you're in a multiverse, the first thing you always ask is, like, okay, what are the constants, right? When, when you're dealing yes. with a bunch of different timelines, what are the constants? Doctor Who is all about this shit. Or at least knew who is. And, you know, normally Neverwinds kind of get cleaned up by the garbage collector of the universe, but if you're somehow channeling one of the constants, like if you're channeling the Eternal Champion in some way, then maybe yeah. that excuses you from the garbage collection. Yeah, well, that, you could even expand it and say, like, if you're channeling an archetype which also exists in this universe, or maybe they exist in all universes, okay. then you're protected by... If if the archetype if the sitting archetype likes you and it's just like yeah no 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 that's one of mine um, leave him alone universe he I don't care if he came from like some steampunk world he's here now and he's 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 my guy I could see sort of like a guardian of the balance archetype but like they, they, it would need to have like a very idiosyncratic this the same way like uh, the hunter has its quarry um, mm. and the warrior has like 
its rival. The Guardian of the Balance archetype would need to, like, decide on what balance it's guarding. It's the, it's the Eternal Centrist. There we go. That's, that's the archetype name. Uh, that could be quite fun because, yeah, it's like you have, instead of having a quarry, maybe you have two quarries. It's like how you feel about, like, two opposing forces and you want to okay. maintain a balance between them. That's good. That's like, good. if you're, you're maintaining the balance between woke and anti-woke, for example, that could be fun in a modern campaign. Or, yeah, um, it depends on, like, the worldview of the Eternal Champion themselves. Maintaining the balance uh, of power between capitalism and communism. Finally, we figured out which archetype Kissinger was channeling. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, no, you could bring in that uh, aspect of it. The like, um, bring in some political science, make it all about balance sure. of power, but in a mystical sense. How it being, yeah, you could take any kind of two opposing forces. You could. This is almost Zoroastrian, um, and that yeah, would make it very interesting yeah. as an archetype. Yeah, Manigan, yeah. That's, um, that would make it interesting because how because your character could choose any two opposing forces, any two for aspect of the culture wars or um, concept of yin and yang or good and evil or whatever you want and how that manifests. How does that manifest, though? It would get some, it would Maybe vary. you need two different identities, one to represent each, and you need to make sure you're advancing both at the same amount. Or you need to make sure your identity is at 50 instead of 1 or 100. Mm, that's interesting. So like an archetype where you need to sort of strategically um, taboo sometimes to keep, keep running that line. Mm, that's very interesting. Two opposing identities, like supernatural identities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like that, actually. And yeah, you have to keep as close. You, you want to get as close down the middle with your... Um, abilities as well yeah your yes, upbeat, exactly. upbeat abilities you want to be in the middle no i like that actually that would be that would actually explain like there should be like uh if you're too far away from the center from the the balance there should be a definite um there's definite drawbacks like a mechanical drawback yeah to encourage players to always like be that flip floppy sort of character yeah yeah exactly no, I like that a lot. Yeah, there, there's definitely some fun stuff you could do with that. You end up with this person who's like, it, it reminds me vaguely of like the whole idea of like this Robin Hood, uh, it's robs from the rich and gives to the poor, and then the poor man goes, "I'm rich," and then Robin Hood goes, "Well, ah." <laughs> Another fun thing you can kind of use Morcock's whole deal as a basis for stuff is um, same way that there's certain people that are constants across all the various timelines and multiverses. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's also artifacts that are the Black Blade and whatnot, right? Yes, yes. But um, as we know with stuff like Jerry Cornelius, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a blade. It can be like a needle gun or something. Are there cases in sort of Moorcock's writings where it's not even really a weapon? I'm not sure, probably. Probably. Not sure, but probably. If, if we're talking Kissinger as the eternal champion here. Uh, a pen he was using to... Poison pen. Yeah, a poison pen. There you go. Perfect. Well, that would be fun if you were doing... Like, imagine if um, you were playing a campaign, like maybe local level or whatever. Sure. Um, and you do your cockboarding at the start, right? And then, like, towards the end, if you you want to get more crazy with it and they get end up stuck in some Neverwind, so you go to some alternate history or some fantasy world or whatever but you just like the the gm goes away and comes back with the same cork board but all the, the all the details are slightly different <laughs> oh that's fucking great 
That's a. It'd take a lot of work, but that'd be a fucking great reveal. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. That would be fun. I don't know. I haven't heard of any UA game, campaigns that really um, utilize our alternate timelines too much. You know, I've heard of ones that kind of took place in various points of history, and the players ended sure. up changing history enough that they're like, okay, yeah, this ain't going to work out the same way it did in our world. But never yeah. anywhere there's like a chance for players to travel between alternate universes. I think that could be a lot of fun. It could be. We discussed this a bit um, in the Neverwhat episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think one of the issues was that it becomes too big then. Um, it, becomes too, it, it becomes like a different kind of game. But if you maintain those um, constants, yeah. individuals or like people playing roles, and you can do that very easily with um, archetypes, less so with adepts, but it's also fun to adapt. Yeah. Um, that could be a lot of fun. No, it's like, oh no, what's Alex Abel in this universe? What's Eric Fisher in this universe? Like, have recurring, like, um, TMZs? That would be a fun campaign for people that, like, really knew the Unknown Army's lore yeah. and setting and backstory, like, too sure. well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you could have lots of Easter eggs, but also, like, pull the rug out from under them. And the good thing about the Unknown Army's, like, system is, like, with the abilities and stuff, is, like, they don't, they're not really tied to modernity at all or our universe no not pursuit is pursuit i mean yeah like we've discussed this people have used the unknown army system at least second edition i'm not so much sure about third edition there for all sorts of fucking games you will use it for fantasy games you know like uh, stuff like the shot gauges and the identity system fundamentally could be applied to a lot of different fucking things there's nemesis which was um used for, I believe, Delta Green and, like, Call of Cthulhu type things. Yeah, taking yeah. Taking Army's tracks. Um, Unknown Ages was the second ed adaptation, of the medieval adaptation of uh, Unknown Army's second ed. Um, I don't think you need to do much for third ed, to be honest. Um, I mean, third edition, the basis could be used for a lot of different stuff, but you'd probably want to, like, you pretty much need to make a whole new list of identity features, I think. You could keep, you no, definitely keep you? some. Do you? What what identified entity features do you need to change? Uh, provides firearm attacks is the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, just use sword, use use weapon. Provides a sword. <laughs> provides sword attack. Oh, I mean, hey, I'm running a game right now where one of the player characters um is because we're in um the Netherlands. Uh, you know they they don't have access to guns really. But mm-hmm. I was like, okay, fuck it. Provides crossbow attacks. There you go. <laughs> crossbow attack. That's, that's yeah, it's fine. Legally, they're toys um, that, in that, the Netherlands. It's fine. Just, just change it to weapons proficiency. Come on. Sure. Um, yeah, all right. Like, Fair enough. Especially if you're doing it, and it's not, it's not like a, if it's not D and D. No. It's, it'll be like unknown armies set in the past, and people in the past, not, not everyone knew how to use weapons. Most no. people were peasants, so like it makes sense to yeah, you like have weapons proficiency to be like use firearms in unknown armies uh, modern, and the rest is just like coerce fucking helplessness and stuff that doesn't need to change alright that's uh, fair that's fair yeah yeah you don't really need to change more think about it than the more points you make yeah you really don't need to change that much you can keep therapeutic I mean just it's, it's slightly different it's uh, just have yeah but like you know a, a priest would have therapeutic yeah exactly M- maybe give it like a different name but that's fucking it yeah exactly uh. I mean like anything with like sort of a custom skill list like UA has, usually adapts pretty well. Uh, would you need to change any of the attributes for 3rd edition? I don't think so. You just need to change your of course I can's. And that's, yeah. that's, that's not too difficult, I don't think. Pretty much. 
All right, this gives me ideas, actually. Shit. The hardest part would be to change very specific adept schools, like like full minuturgy and stuff. Uh, well, I th- I'd just say full minuturgy doesn't exist yet. That, that yeah. saves me a lot of work. Um, there might be a sword magic school, though, and that could be fun to work on. Yeah, sword magic, via turgy, but it's on horses. Uh, yeah, horse magic, absolutely. Horse magic, absolutely, it makes sense. And we we already have like a lot of old magic schools, like um, Herpomancy. Like, there's magic schools that we know are just like older than others. I, I would allow Mechanomancy to go pretty far back in time, because the ancient Greeks had some Fair crazy enough. inventions and yeah. things. Like, just keep it as like, yeah, you're making a machine. And you're giving out your memories. It's fine. Well, yeah, honestly, another one you could do would be just like, you know, you could have basically the same magic school, but change the charging structure and taboo a little bit. And it feels very different. You can keep all the formula spells, but yeah, honestly, like the main thing you need to change for unknown armies and, um, I don't know, um, let's say, uh, China under Mongol rule. Sure. You need to stand up a bunch of equi- new equipment, but like that's the only real thing coming to mind. Yeah. I can play my Genghis Khan Iconomancer, no problem. Yeah. Yep. And you, there's a good thing about, um, if you start selling rooms with Michael Moorcock, is because like most of these worlds, like different worlds, like they were fantasy worlds, and a lot of his yeah. alternate histories were, like they weren't meant to be realistic alternate histories. They're meant to be, no. like, it's, 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 it's crazy stuff. Um, yeah, like, argu- I mean, as far as, like, the whole his ideas being influential as fuck thing, I mean, fuck, he arguably invented steampunk with Warlord of the Air. Yes, uh, he had a huge influence on steampunk in that sense. I mean, looking at um, uh, Jerry Cornelius, one of the worlds that he ended up in was, like, the U.S. invading Europe, um, like, as a as a play on the Vietnam War. Um, it, was, it was shenanigans. So uh, that would be what I do with it I would be because I do like my I'm a I'm a big alternate history head and I like my hard yeah. alternate history but in this case I'd be like no 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 let's go let's go crazy with this uh, it's all about the the tone of this particular parallel world well yeah and like that's much. the thing like you making alternate history hard is mostly just a question of how much research you're willing to do you can come Basically. up with some pretty crazy shit and make it work if you're willing to spend enough time going to the nitty-gritty of everything. That's, that's the thing, because I like hard alternate history or like heavily researched or due diligence alternate yeah. history because I respect the work behind it and I'm like, and it, like I'm not a big, uh, I don't give a shit about the, the plausibility. So I do and I don't. Um, I, don't I, I like the plausibility if it's an aspect of it, which someone has it, worked it, on. It's the usual thing where like suspension of disbelief needs to be maintained so, if you have something that feels very grounded, and then all of a sudden some crazy shit's done, and then you're like, wait, what? But if, it, if it's yeah. crazy from the get-go, where it's like, okay, yeah. Martians invade Mexico in the 1958, where do we go from here? We're, we've started it kind of crazy already, we, can, we have a good presence to work with. Yes, this is what they call the, the ASB timeline, the Alien Space Bats timeline, for all the yes. your altered history heads out there, this is for you. But I like them too, uh, if they're well done. And with especially with Moorcock, um, inspired altered history. No, yeah, Moorcock inspired um, never when world traveling unknown armies games. I think that's what you want to go for. Are there any lesser known parts of his whole cosmology that you think could be brought to UA? Because the big ones I know are like the Eternal Champion and his buddies. 
uh, Law versus Chaos, and then the multi- I, I, I guess you could have some of his demons show up in a UA game. That could be a funny Easter egg for one or two <laughs> players. There's a whole bunch of different just names you could rip off. Yeah, um, it's it's it, like ideas you could rip off, uh, objects of power that you could rip off. The problem is that there's so much. There's so much that it's like it's you, you want to just like sort of graze from it. I feel. You could definitely bog it down. It could just be like, oh, fuck. Tormson's on his Morcock shit again. <laughs> That's right. I want a Morcock um, and I'll have it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Though, the, like, far as his depiction of demons, I think there's something kind of cool there. Because de- demons and unknown armies are usually pretty... I mean, like, they're dangerous, but they're also usually kind of, like, petty and low to the ground, so to speak. Um, yeah. So I kind of like the idea of making, like, a more... More cocky and demon, but on, the, on an army's like, mm-hmm. what would an extremely powerful unknown army's demon look like? Someone on the level of Ariok or someone like that. Yes. Um. So fiends are meant to be demons that have degenerated to an extent, or like they're an, they're an alternate version. Like demons can turn into revenants or fiends, depending. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, fiends yeah. have uh, more psycho, a bit powerful in a way, and have a very specific crazy name they're powered by names like you could uh influence them if you know their true name and all this sort of nonsense that's yeah. the sort of thing you'd want to like start throwing some more cocky and demons or some references in um if you want to go that way um i guess with fiends and that um uh, sort of thing it does because it, it runs the risk of becoming a different kind of sort of urban fantasy game and more like judeo-christian inspired if you're throwing in these fiends and things but if you make them wacky and Wilcockian, that that could be fun. Yeah, you definitely still want them to feel, you know, g- kind of Gonzo and UA. Like, yeah, like I could see a very powerful fiend as a antagonist in an army's game, but it'd probably want to be run for people that kind of already know and have experience with, like, the usual demons, so you can be like, uh, okay, this is even worse than most demons. I mean, we could do it, actually. That Like, fiends, demons, and revenants, that could, that's that's an episode fodder, if ever uh, had one. Yeah, God, really. Yeah, that, that's, that might be more than one, even. Definitely. I think that if looking at um, other things that Moorcock has done that could be inspired by, um, there is the Colonel Piat novels, which are quite fun. Um, All right. They are, I don't know those. Uh, these are like they're not as crazy. They're sort of they're more historical. Um, it's the the main character Maxim Arturovich Pietnitsky um, is sort of like he's an unreliable narrator in revolutionary Russia at the beginning, um, who dreams of becoming okay. a great inventor and engineer, and is is, is a, he's he's just the worst guy. He's terribly anti-Semitic, but in like a Lovecraft sort of pathetic way, um, and he gets into like just terrible adventures and just bounces from one group to another, um, going from across the novels from uh, Russia to the U.S. to other places, bouncing between shenanigans. He reminds me of um a bit of Adrian Mole in a way okay. in terms of being an unreliable narrator who thinks better of himself than he actually is. Um, or oh, sort of the average sort of Nabokovian narrator. Yes. There's some fun like that. I don't know. That in terms of it's a good book. Uh, I've only read the first one and part of the second one of that series. It's fun and it's good um, in terms of being a good representation of the craziness that you might expect from an adept. Um, just in terms of completely self-deluded, but 
bouncing from one fucking scenario, like one shenanigan to the next. And it's because of its, its later work, the uh, I find the prose is a bit better. Honestly, like, far as the unreliable narrator thing, that kind of reminds me of, like, what I think is probably the really important thing to take away from Moorcock, which is just their creativity and willing oh, yeah. to take ideas and techniques from mm-hmm. pretty much anywhere in art. Like, yeah, yeah. Moorcock as a stylist um, and, like, as a character writer, in a lot of ways, maybe not the best, but... Just, you know, he was honestly like the first guy to really bring a lot of those more experimental writing techniques into the pulps. Yeah. Because he was just, he read fucking everything he could get his hands on. Oh, he read a lot. Yeah. And just stole ideas from all over the fucking place and just say, oh, I can put this into my work and make it more fun to write this. And take this idea from Nabokov, this idea from Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. He wasn't a big fan of Lovecraft. And just throw it all fucking together because it's fun. Yes, absolutely. It's fun. It makes writing and creativity fun. And I think that's a... UA is very well suited to that sort of creativity creativity grab bag sort of writing style. Absolutely. Totally agree there. With Moorcock, I've got one of his books, which is um, a series of essays called uh, Wizardry and Wild Romance. Um, and it's, it's an intense book, but he just like, he's just talking about like fantasy, where it came from, like all the way back. It starts off with La Chanson de Roland and all these, like the Arthurian stuff, because he was big into Arthur, uh, Le- Arthurian legend and he did a lot of research, but he read so much and it's, it just, and he had hot, hot takes as we mentioned before. And you don't have to agree to him, but they, with him, but the hot takes are spicy and worth reading. They're always well yes, argued yes, too. He's a good argue. Like I don't agree with a lot of epic poo, and it's like okay, yeah, I can, I can. He's got a point. Uh, I can concede some of these points he's making. He's not, yeah. he's not talking out of his ass. It's like it's like, and I really appreciate good criticism. I, I am very picky about yeah. like what I do was like if I want to buy a book, um, and I don't know if I want to buy it or not, I'm always going to look at the one star reviews because I will judge a book's quality based on the quality of its one-star reviews. If the people writing the one-star reviews seem like idiots, then it's probably a good book. This is how I feel. No, that just makes sense. And I don't like bad criticism, and there's so much of it, but good criticism is delicious. I like it, even if I disagree, because it always has a good idea. Well, and good criticism can sometimes make you want to read a book more. Yes, exactly. You're reading... A critic that's very, well, critical of something that you're interested in and deciding whether or not to yes. check it out. And you're like, all right, I, I, I want to be part of this conversation. I, I want to have my own opinions on this to see how much they align with this guy. Yeah. And sometimes you'll find like certain critics who are reliable in terms of like if they don't like something, that you're going to like it. And that's one of the uses of critics. Yes, that is a very useful barometer to find. But yeah, I think that in terms of the the Moorcock hypothesis and coffee and alcohol being opposing forces, I don't have a great deal to say about that, except for what we've already said. Those are both things you should include in more of your Unknown Armies yes. games. Uh, ideally, out of character too. That's right. Uh, more coffee and more alcohol in your Unknown Armies game, in and out of character. Yes. And speedballs as well, of course. Well, that goes without saying, I think, Thompson. 
All right. Well, um, hey, your eyes looking a bit healed up. Um, more than I expect, honestly. Uh, any uh, any visions yet? Odin, Odin, give you anything? I don't know, but my cousin has never looked sexier. Anything left to me